0: Well, my only comment on that marvellous skit that we've been watching over the course of the week is that it's the weirdest triangle I've ever seen. (laughs) Uh, If you're listening in MP3 land and you don't know what we all found hilariously funny, then shame on you, you weren't at ANCON. What are you doing (laughs) listening on MP3? Maybe next year you should be here. All right. What on earth is the church doing today? Across the Western world, church attendance is slipping, if not, frankly, in free fall. What's the church to do about it? There's no shortage of suggestions. Uh, the contemporary currents in church growth literature talk about emerging churches or emergent churches, there's a distinction, apparently. There's missional churches. There's fresh expressions of churches. We've tried cafe church. We've tried community church. We've tried churches with candles. And we've tried churches with karaoke. Okay, I haven't actually heard of a karaoke church. But, but I'm sure we could probably find one somewhere. All are striving to answer the same question. What on earth is the church meant to be doing? Now the first part of the answer is to get clear in our heads the relationship of the church to the wider world. I think we can summarise what the Bible says about that under the three headings of this section. The church is in the world, the church is for the world, but it must not itself become worldly. So we can see all three of these actually in the passage from 1 Peter chapter 2 which is there on page 40 in your books. The church in the world. Let me read from 1 Peter chapter 2. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may declare the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, They may see your honourable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. So The first thing to notice there is in verse 9, if you've got a pen you might like to highlight it, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. You've seen those verses before, those those phrases before, you recognise them? Peter's taken those words straight from Exodus 19, which we read right back Monday morning, when the Lord spoke to his old covenant people at Mount Sinai. And Peter's taken those words and reappropriated them for the new covenant church built around Jesus. This is who the church is. This is what they are to do, to be this people. But instead of God taking his people out of Egypt and forming a new political entity, the nation of Israel... As the new covenant earthly church, we live in constant exile. You can see how Peter describes it there in verse 11. We are aliens and exiles, or aliens and strangers. Just like the Israelites were when they were in Egypt. So we are strangers here, God's people in the world. And i will try to represent that difference in the diagram at the bottom of your page there. But like the old covenant Israelites, we've been made by God to be a kingdom of priests. And I've mentioned it before, but the work of a priest was to serve God, but also to have a face towards the people. The priests serve God and the people, and that's what the church is to do. So in verse 5, we're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, like a priest would but we do it through Jesus Christ. And I take it that the sacrifice we offer is the sacrifice of our very selves. We offer all of our life to God through Jesus Christ. But we have also tasked with proclaiming God's mighty acts of salvation as we've experienced them in Christ Jesus, and we do that to the world. So we have a task that's for the world in which we live. So we're in the world, We have a face for the world. And finally, still picking up on Peter's appropriation of that Exodus language, we're a holy nation, a holy priesthood. Or in verses 11, as aliens and strangers, we're to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. That is, we live in the world, but we're not to live like the world. We're to be holy, we're to be set apart, we're to be different. As you can see there from verse 12, our lives are to be noticeably different. We're to live honorably among the Gentiles so that despite what they say about us, ultimately they will testify to the life that we've lived for God and for his glory. We live in the world, we live for the world, but we're not of the world. Now it's this understanding of who we are as Jesus' church here on earth that prompted the title of Stanley Howavas and William Williman's book on the church, which is a great book, but tragically uh, we weren't able to get it for this conference, but you can probably pick it up secondhand on the net. It's called Resident Aliens. Why is he called it Resident Aliens? Well, it's from this passage. As they say in their book, and the quote's there on your page, the church exists today as resident aliens, an adventurous colony in a society of unbelief. Right, so don't get all Star Trekky on me and think aliens with your woo, you know, like it's aliens and exiles type language from the scriptures. Okay, the church exists as resonant, an adventurous colony. That's what you think of when you go to church, right? Adventure. In what sense is church life adventurous? I'll tell you why it's an adventure. Because we as Christ's body are living the entirety of our life by a different script. We are living in a society of unbelief and we live by a different allegiance that transforms everything. We're a holy nation. We're the living God's people. We take a different course through life, one based on this grasp of who Jesus is, that he's the Christ, that he's the Lord, the Son of the living God, and living together in utter commitment to him, despite what the world thinks, yes, that's an adventure. An adventurous alternative colony in a society of unbelief. That's what it means to be a community of aliens and exiles. So let's think a little bit about some of these things. Let's think about being a church uh, for the world. I'm now on page 41. In Jesus' vision for the church, the life we lead as his church is a critical part of our witness to the world. talked about this a little bit last night. It's not just the words we proclaim, but our life too. Let's think a little bit about that. Listen to how Jesus in particular puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. What's the light that we shine? Well, according to verse 16 there, it's our good works. It's the life that we lead as his people. It's our holiness. It's the adventurous life of faith that we live together as his church. That's the light that shines in the world's darkness. See, our difference isn't just an implication of who we are. Oh, we've been made to be God's holy people, so we're different. Our difference is actually an invitation to the world. To join this community. To join this adventurous life of faith. So here's some more of how, um, how Halvass and Williamson put it. They say the message that sustains the colony, the church, is not for itself, but for the whole world. The colony is God's means of a major offensive against the world, for the world. But as they point out, it's not just the words that we speak to the world that matter, though those are critical. Listen to what they say. They say the confessing church seeks to be a visible church. A place clearly visible to the world in which people are faithful to their promises, love their enemies, tell the truth, honour the poor, suffer for righteousness, and thereby testify to the amazing community creating power of God. This church knows that its most credible form of witness and the most effective thing it can do for the world is the actual creation of a living, breathing, visible community of faith. Or well, to put it more succinctly, in the words of Oliver O'Donovan there on your page, the church addresses the world with its being and not only with its talking. We don't just proclaim hope for the world. By God's grace, we are the hope for the world as the body of the Saviour Jesus. Oh, that every single person at Sydney University would declare their faith in Jesus, be grafted as a member into his body, and be part of the EU. Actually at the end of the day. I don't care whether they are part of the EU or, you or not. I just want them part of the body of Christ. Wouldn't it be fantastic. if every, Don't you want to see. Every single individual around the globe. In the church. In the new humanity. Worshipping Jesus. Their saviour and lord. The church is. The hope what other hope is there but being part of Christ's body and by being the church we we, we announce the invitation be part of Jesus' new humanity be part of his church but if we're going to be God's light in the world if we're going to be this city on a hill that can't be hidden then we can't be just like the world can we because you know, when it's dark, you're in a dark room, and you've got a torch, and it's not turned on, it doesn't do you much good. It's no use being dark in darkness. You need to be light. I know, profound influence, I know. <laughs> but you, it's no use if we're to be light, in God, like God's light in the world, that we're just like the darkness, is it? If we're going to live out our calling as God's holy nation, we have to ensure that whilst we're in the world, the world is not in the church. Now, I'm not talking about people here. I'm talking about values. Of course, there will always be people who are not yet Christians in our church gatherings. That's not a difficulty. That's a delight. But if we're succeeding in being lights in the world, we should expect people to be attracted to the flame. But what will extinguish the light is when we start taking on the values and the deeds of darkness around us and bring it into the new humanity gathered around Christ. The great challenge for the church, there on your page, the great challenge for the church is this be the church. Be the church. Don't let go of our calling to be a holy nation and become indistinguishable from every other gathering in the world. So reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount, Tim Foster put it like this there on your page. The expression of these values by the church, he says, is essential to its successful engagement in mission. Just as Torah obedience was essential for the success of Israel's mission to the nations, the church's oddness, difference, is essential to its faithfulness. The logic of the sermon is that the disciples serve the world by demonstrating that a new society is breaking in, which offers an alternative communal existence shaped by the character and purposes of God. Just as apostasy destroyed Israel's capacity to mission, accommodation to the values of the world poses the greatest dangers to the church, diluting its capacity to bear witness to the radical nature of the new order. Now the last half sentence there I think is key, accommodation to the values of the world poses the greatest dangers to the church, diluting its capacity to bear witness to the radical nature of the new order, the new humanity that Jesus is creating through faith around himself. So just reflect on that for a moment. Do you think it might be possible, do you think it might be possible that one of the reasons, humanly speaking, that our proclamation of the gospel seems to meet with so little fruit is because what we're living is so little different to the world around us. John Stott certainly seems to think so, there on page 42. He says there, Why is it, you must have asked as I have, that in many situations our evangelistic efforts are often fraught with failure? Several reasons may be given, and I do not want to oversimplify, but one main reason is that we don't look like the Christ we are proclaiming. We don't look like the Christ we are proclaiming. You know, Jesus says, "'Why are you worried about the future?' if you're one of my disciples. Why why are you worried about the future? Sell your possessions. Give away to the needy. Seek first the kingdom, and your heavenly Father will look after your future. That's what Jesus says. But we, his people, say, yeah, but you don't really mean that. Because it's wise to secure your financial future for yourself. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus says, If anyone wants to be my disciple, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. But we say, I can keep my dreams my ambitions, my plans, I don't really have to leave them behind, do I? Not really. See, do we suck the potency out of Jesus' words by not living them as his people? Do we go away from sessions like this? Or from, say, yesterday on being a church of sacrificial service saying, oh, that was really challenging. And we don't do a single thing differently. Sister, brother, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of being his holy people who live... By his word alone, be the church. Let his word dwell in us richly and bear abundant fruit. And don't be like the world. That's why it's actually really helpful that the slogan the EU chose for Campus 2011 outreach this year was, you are the light of the world. If we're going to reach the campus at Sydney Uni with the gospel, the truths of that gospel must shine out from each of us, individually in our relationships. In the care we have for people, in the fact that we love them, that we actually want to see them saved, that we pray for them. But it also has to shine out of us corporately, actually. As God's people gathered together on campus, you, the EU, and all who bear the name of Jesus at Sydney Uni, let your light shine together so that the campus might see and give glory to your Father in heaven. So part of what this is going to mean for us is that if we really do care about the world that's lost, we must not neglect the Christian community. How you care about church, how you, your church, the Christian communities of which you're a part, that is critical to your witness because life in the church is not an optional extra. But tragically, we don't see things often that way. Tom Smale wrote this it's there on your page. The churches and their gospel are today largely marginalised in the life of individualised Western society because they are, first of all, very near the margins of the lives of many of their members. And most of us only have to look at our own heart and our own lifestyle to see that. so. It's going to be hard to meet the challenge of being the church if we don't put some sort of priority on our life together. So we've talked a bit about the church and the world. We're in the world, we're for the world, but we resist being the world. We want to rise to meet this challenge of being Jesus' church. What does it look like to be the church then? Well, we've already talked about that a fair bit this week. It means being a community of gracious love. It means being a people devoted to serving. It means being a people in whom God's spirit and word dwell richly. But What I I want to do now is actually go back to the paradigm with which we started on Monday morning the paradigm that came from God's old covenant people the nation of Israel and see how that is transformed as we come together as God's new covenant church now you might remember from Monday morning God's old covenant people were to be a people of response what sort of response are we to make to God as his new covenant people so I'm up to part B a people of response Well, the primary reason where to, sorry, the primary response where to make is actually the same as Old Covenant Israel. Primarily, we're to be a people characterized by singular worship. We worship one God only, who's rescued us, made us his church, the God who's revealed himself through the scriptures as one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the greatest danger for the church, I think, is syncretism. Syncretism is the attempt to meld worship of the one true God with our worship of other idols. See, we want to have it all. We don't really want to deny ourselves and follow after just Jesus alone. We don't want to have to give up anything, which is why we find it so hard to not be like the world around us. We actually love their gods. We love their materialism and their greed and their pursuit of pleasure and self-fulfillment. We don't want to put away the idols of Egypt. This was the problem in old covenant Israel and it's always been a problem in Jesus' church. Look at how Paul wrote to the Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's what he's saying is these Old Testament guys in Israel, they had it all going for them. They had God's presence among them in the cloud. God provided for all their spiritual needs. They had it all. Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And they were struck down in the wilderness. Which, if you know the story from Exodus, is a true story, right? Or Exodus in the next couple of books. Because that generation of adults that that came to Mount Sinai, saw the thunder of the lightning, heard God speak. That generation of adults, all but two, died in the wilderness and never got to the promised land. They were struck down in the wilderness. Why? Well, let's read on, verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you're standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you are able to endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. You see, the response, the response above all responses that we're to make to God as his people is to worship him alone. Singular worship. Don't chase after your own version of the gods of Egypt or Canaan. Don't somehow think that even though we're part of Jesus' church, we can now worship these other gods as well as the true living God. He just won't allow it, actually. He is rightly a jealous God. Since these other things that we bow down and worship with our lives and our time and our money, they are not gods. He alone is the true and living God. And he's entitled to our worship. So singular worship is the response for which God has grafted us into his people. What does singular worship look like for the new covenant community? Well, again, actually, similar to that paradigm way back from talk number one, worship of the one true living God is seen in holiness. On the next page there, page 43, Paul is again addressing the Corinthians, this time 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement, he says, has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. You can see there that actually Paul connects these ideas of being God's temple, of not being like the world because we are his temple, instead we're to live lives of holiness. And you can see there on the page my attempt at a diagram for the New Covenant Church. We've been chosen out of the world to be God's people. We're indwelt by his presence through the spirit. That's the white arrow going down. And we've been chosen for this response of singular worship. That's the arrow going up. Seen in living as his holy people. That's the dotted sort of line around the community. Okay, okay. It was my attempt, I said. If anyone next year wants to volunteer to create diagrams to accompany the talks, I would really love to talk to you. Maybe it's a spiritual gift you have to share with the community. And it'll stop me fighting with word to make these diagrams. (laughs) So as we keep pushing on this idea, I'm, I'm still pushing on this idea of response to God. Okay, so we respond to God in singular worship. We see that that's That's expressed in holiness. Well, what does holiness look like then? And that's where some of the big differences between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant church come to the front. You can see it there on page 43, point B. The shape of holiness in the new covenant. This is really important. If we're going to be the church, we want to be his holy people, we need to know how does God want us to live. So we need to know what holiness looks like. First thing we have to say is this, we are, as Jesus' church, free from the old covenant law. So the Apostle Paul makes this point, Romans 7, verse 6, but now we are discharged from the law. We are dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So there's no question that as, as the new covenant church, we're not under the old covenant Torah. We're not obliged or expected to live out the details of the Old Testament law. Instead, we live in the new age of the Spirit, not the age of the law. However, point two there, we are under a new law. Paul, again, this time 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 to 21. Paul writes, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And here's the point to note, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And then note this bit, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law so that i might win those outside the law that is paul introduces a distinction here right he's saying he's not under the old covenant law the torah he's under god's law or christ's law well what's that what's christ's law if it's not the the old covenant law well actually it's not a new law it's an old one um Have a look, point three there. Look at Jesus' interaction with the Pharisee here, who was an expert in the law, in Matthew 22, 36 to 40. "'Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest?' Jesus said to him, "'You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart "'and with all your soul and with all your mind. "'This is the greatest and first commandment, "'and a second is like it. "'You shall love your neighbour as yourself. "'On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets.' So this is where we got the two categories of law that we looked at in Talk 1. All of the Old Testament laws hang on these two central commands. Love the Lord alone, love your neighbour as yourself. This is the heart of that law. And actually, it's the heart of how God wants his people to live in all places at all times. Whether you're under the old covenant or the new, this is the heart of it. Love the Lord alone with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So writing to Christians, Paul then can say in Romans 13, 8 to 10, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. He says love is the fulfilling of the law. He's saying when you love the Lord, when you love others, you fulfill the heart of that old covenant law. You haven't, yes, called the priest in because there's mold in your house as leviticus tells you to and cleaned it out you haven't fulfilled you haven't followed the letter of all that law but the heart of that law was love the lord alone and love your neighbor as yourself that carries through into the new covenant in the new covenant you're free from all the detail you live in the spirit but that means you're under christ's law which is the heart of it love the lord alone love your neighbor as yourself So, um, you might remember uh, the arrows that we had in the first, like to represent that. So, I'm going to try to show you on a diagram. Those were the arrows we had, right? Love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And remember that that was expressed in ritual purity, Sabbath laws, circumcision laws, temple laws. But what happens when you tra- come across into the new covenant? We retain the central arrow, but we lose the feathers. As you come across into the New Covenant, you retain the arrow, but you lose those feathers. What about the the law to love your neighbor as yourself? We saw back in Talk 1, if there were all sorts of ways that were ex- that, that, um, different concerns. There were, you know, how do you love your family? How do you love your pro- like, uh, love with respect to property? How do you love your neighbor with res- when an injury occurs? How do you love your neighbor with respect to sexual relationships? What about the strangers? Those were all different areas in which you needed to love your neighbor, right? What happens when you come across to the new covenant? Well, what happens when you come across to the new covenant is not that you lose those concerns, but those concerns are transformed. Did you like that? Did you? That little, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's 15 minutes. I'm not getting back. Um, <laughs> if anyone wants to do keynote for next year, you can come and see me too, because that'd be nice. Um, Okay, let's think about this a little bit. Like, look over the page, page 44. You can see how this plays out a little bit under these two headings. So, loving God. We saw the old covenant expression. What about all the temple observances? You know, rich, the uh, rituals about festivals and sacrifices. What, what happens in the new covenant? Well, in the new covenant, Jesus is himself the reality of, to which the temple and all of its rituals pointed. Jesus is the sacrifice with a capital S. Jesus is the high priest with capital H and P. He's the temple. He's God amongst us. And after the pouring out of his spirit, we are now the temple. And the sacrifice we offer is that of our very selves to God, which is acceptable to God because we are in Jesus, the high priest. So you can see how it's transformed. We lose all the old covenant detail about those rituals because of the new covenant reality in Jesus. So the same with the Sabbath. Translated across into the new covenant, according to Romans 14, 5 and 6. Whether you keep the Sabbath or not, whether you regard one day as special or all the same, it's entirely up to you in the new covenant. What about circumcision? Well, according to Romans chapter 2, verse 29, real circumcision is of the heart and it's a work of the spirit. And the mark of this inward circumcision is no longer outward physical circumcision. The mark of it now is Faith In Jesus Christ. So you could look up, say, uh, Romans 4, verses 11 to 12, and see that there with respect to Abraham. What about ritual purity? You know, all the food laws, all the uncleanness laws. Well, according to Jesus in Mark 7, 18 to 22, it's what comes out of a person's heart that defiles them, not what goes into their tummies. So we're freed from the Old Covenant food and purity laws. In fact, in the ministry of Jesus, we see an amazing reversal, right? Because in the Old Covenant, uncleanness was contagious. So if I go up and touch something that's unclean, unclean food or someone who is ritually unclean, just by touching them, I become ritually unclean. Okay? In Jesus, you see an amazing reversal. In Jesus... His purity is contagious. So the woman who has the the terrible bleeding problem, which made her endlessly unclean, touches Jesus. Now, what that would normally mean is Jesus is now ritually unclean. Except what you see is suddenly she becomes healed. There's this amazing reversal that comes about in the ministry of Jesus that now His cleanness is shared with us. So while holiness for us still looks like loving God with all our heart, we've now been freed from the particular expression that was to have under the old covenant law. Okay, what what about loving your neighbour... Well, let's think about some of the different areas we noted in Talk 1, which fit under this category of loving your neighbour. What happens to these concerns under the New Covenant? First of all, what about property and property rights, which is a big concern under the Old Covenant? Well, in Talk 2, we heard Jesus say that his kingdom is not from this world. John chapter 18. And so what that means is our inheritance in the kingdom of God is no longer a physical bit of land. Our inheritance is in the new heavens and the new earth. What that means is that as a church, we are now free to radically share our possessions to help others. Look at Jesus' teaching about selling your possessions, which I quoted before in Luke 12. Look at the radical sharing of possessions amongst the first Christian congregations in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Why was it that there were people that they would just bring their land and sell it? They were selling off their inheritance in the physical land of Israel. Because they knew that their inheritance now was in the kingdom of God in Christ, in the new creation. Now, if you think actually Jesus' teaching and the example of the first Christians with respect to property being so free to just sell it and entrust themselves to God. If you think that sounds like a long way from church life today, I think you're right. But maybe that's because we're not into singular worship. Maybe it's because we're not actually into holiness. Maybe it's because we try to worship God and our personal security. God and money. God and a property portfolio despite Jesus saying that actually that's impossible. What about in the respect to uh, the injury concerns of the Old Testament? Well, it's interesting in the Old Testament, now instead of a principle of an eye for an eye, which was the standard of justice to be used in some cases in the Old Covenant, under the New Covenant, justice is delayed. We turn the other cheek, Matthew 5. It's the Lord who takes vengeance, not us. Romans 12. We show the divine mercy and gracious love of God now in our relationships by showing radical love for our enemies. We do good even to those who hate us. Luke 6. So you can see what's happening here, hopefully. Under the new covenant, we have the same concerns in, our, in loving our neighbour, but they're expressed differently. Why are they expressed differently? Because they are now expressed in a way that reflects the radical reality of the coming kingdom. And so I could go on through uh, thinking about how sexual relationships and strangers and family, I I could go on explaining all these, but you'll get to look at some of these and think about some of these, I hope, in review group, maybe tomorrow. So what we're seeing here is not a negation of this heart of holiness, which is to love God and love your neighbor, what we're seeing is that the particular shape of it is transformed under the new covenant. And if anything, by freeing us from the particularities of that old covenant law, Jesus actually turns up the volume. He amps it up for us. It's not that suddenly it's easier for us, it's now amped up. But the essence of what it means to be God's holy people here has stayed the same. We're to be a people of singular worship shown in holy love for God and for neighbor. Now, I'm going to move on to the second part of our response to God as his church, which flows out of the first, uh, but maybe you'd like to stand for 30 seconds before we do that. All right. All right, here we go. Okay, so on page 45, page 45, you can see that we're to respond to God By being a people of faithful perseverance. We're to be a people of faithful perseverance. Now, by perseverance, I don't mean people who just keep on going. When the Bible talks about perseverance, it means persevering in holiness. Persevering in holding fast to God and His Word. Persevering in throwing off sin... And continuing in obedience. You can see this if you look at Hebrews twelve one, there on your page. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. So you see there perseverance is connected to throwing off the sin that clings so closely. And running with this sort of perseverance is a direct outworking, actually, of our love for God. John points that out in 1 John 5.3, For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So a fundamental part of our response of holy worship to God is our love for God, and that's going to be seen in our obedience, our faithful perseverance in his ways. The Bible's not saying here, just to be clear, if you're going to be holy, you have to be perfect. As though perseverance equals perfection. That's not right, actually. What the Bible says is that holiness is characterized by repentance. What holiness looks like is repentance from sin. And this was true under the old covenant as well as now in the new. A holy person, a righteous person under the old covenant was not a perfect person but when they sinned they repented and they availed themselves of the means of atonement which God had made available to them and similarly for us in the new covenant in Christ being God's holy people doesn't mean we're without sin what it does mean is that our lives individually and corporately are characterized by repentance And by God's grace, all of our failings are covered by the atonement that Jesus made for the sins of the world at the cross. So what this means for us is that as God's holy people, we're to take our corporate holiness seriously. Now, as I've been reflecting on what it means to take our corporate holiness seriously, I think we have at least three problems. Three things that, are, that we struggle with which often mean we don't take our corporate holiness seriously. First problem is that we've forgotten our identity. We've forgotten that we, together, are a dwelling place for God. In fact, it, it, it's, in, um, it's in this very problem of dealing with sin in the community that Paul talks about God's people as the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's to deal with this very problem. See, if we get that we are the temple of God's Holy Spirit, then we won't tolerate sin in the body because we know God dwells here. So first thing, I think we've forgotten our identity as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Second, we've cheapened grace. I think sometimes we really think, oh, it's okay, grace will cover it. It doesn't really matter if I continue in this sin or if we continue in this sin, because grace will cover it. Somehow, now that we're in Christ, we've dissociated grace from repentance. Repentance. But see, God never pours out grace just randomly. His grace is lavished on the repentant. To repentant sinners, their sins are not counted against them. Our repentance doesn't earn us favour with God. It's still by His grace that we're forgiven. It's unmerited. But God chooses to extend His grace to the humble to the contrite, to the repentant. I think, tragically, we often become like the old covenant covenant Israelites who kept on in their sin because they said, look, it's okay, we've got the temple, the temple, the temple. So it doesn't matter, really. It'll be okay, we've got it. They were stupid fools. But I wonder if sometimes we're in danger of making the same mistake. See, God's grace is no license for self-indulgence. It's no license to just be obedient where we choose, just be obedient when it's easy or convenient. So I think we've cheapened grace. The third problem I think we have with respect to caring about corporate holiness is that we're fatally infected with individualism. I think sometimes we think, if you are caught in a sin, it's your problem, nothing to do with me, as I mentioned last night. I don't think we sometimes even think about the holiness of the church of which I'm part, or the holiness of my Bible study group, or the holiness of the EU. It doesn't even actually come into our mind, because we are so fatally infected with individualism. Doesn't even, we don't even register it think about it so we've bought that philosophical approach of our culture that your only concern really is with yourself and you only really worry about others insofar as it affects you so we let sin fester in the life of Jesus church because well it's their problem and I guess it's Jesus problem but I guess it's not my problem but it is it's our problem when there's sin in the body Now, I guess before we therefore go, right, well, I've got a bit of a list of some sins here that I could point out to some of you, and sort of we all get to getting to concerned with corporate holiness, we do actually need to heed a warning of Jesus here. If we're going to start taking seriously God's call for us to be a people of holiness, then um, we're going to need the right place to start is actually with ourselves. So Jesus says there in Matthew 7 you know it well Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbour, let me first take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Now there's two things there, first of all Get yourself right. Look in the mirror first. But secondly, he doesn't just say, take the speck out of your own eye and then frankly mind your own business. He says, and then you'll take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly take the speck out of your neighbours, right? There's a concern for corporate holiness here too. But let's start with ourselves and think about, okay, how are we meant to respond to sin in ourselves? Well, first of all, there's a, it's a wrong way to respond to sin. There's a couple of ways. I guess you could just ignore it altogether in your own life. That's bad. But there's another wrong way too. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he distinguishes between what he calls godly grief and worldly grief over sin. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for godly grief, he says, Brings no regret, but worldly grief brings death. So the difference between these two types of grief over sin is where they are directed. See, godly grief over sin is directed towards God, worldly grief doesn't bring God into the picture. Worldly grief over sin is self focused, it's all about my personal regret about how this sin that I did has impacted on me. It's not really dealing with the fact that sin is an affront to God. This worldly grief doesn't actually bring repentance before God. It just wishes the sin hadn't happened. It doesn't necessarily lead to any change. Paul says it just produces death if we read the rest of what Paul says in that passage we can see how to get it right for godly grief he says produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret but worldly grief produces death for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation what alarm what longing what zeal what punishment At every point, you have proved yourself guiltless in the matter. See, this godly grief, a grief that acknowledges the sin that is an affront to God and comes to God in the matter, produces repentance and leads to salvation. And you can see there in Paul's description, the sort of characteristics that accompany this repentance. Earnestness, eagerness to change, indignation and alarm, longing zeal, even punishment. He's speaking there, I think, of church discipline, not of self-punishment, not of punishing yourself. That's not an appropriate way to respond to sin. But is this, this picture of godly grief, how we respond to sin? Or are we more prone to this worldly grief that languishes in self-focused regret? And doesn't really produce any change. Do you need to see some godly grief in your life at the moment? Are there particular areas of your life of which you know you need to repent? May I urge you in the power of the Spirit... Bring it to God with godly grief. Seek for that earnestness, that eagerness, that zeal, that longing, that indignation, that alarm. The desire to turn around and worship Him. Put away your foreign gods. You might want to deal with that. Like, you know, it's easy to go, yeah, well, yeah, I do. I, like, as soon as you say it, I know what the thing is. <laughs> it's right there. Deal with it. Tonight. Don't put it off. Why? You know, after every session, there's some staff down. At the side. Go and pray with them. Just say, look, he's the thing. I want to repent of it. Let's pray. <laughs> you know, let's, let's deal with this. Let's bring it to God with some godly grief. Well, what about responding then to sin in others? Again, we can start with some wrong ways to do it, actually. I've just mentioned the biggest problem is that we don't think sin in the wider community of God is a problem at all, or a problem to do with me. Paul had to address this, actually, with the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even found among the pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife. That's probably his stepmom, right? Which is bad. <laughs> that's the point. And he says, and you are arrogant. So not caring about sin or thinking that somehow it isn't a problem, that's, that's clearly a problem. But there's another mistake we can make as well. Over the page on page 46... And I just wonder whether actually the problem that Paul has to address here might be the fact that the Corinthians overreacted to the advice he just gave in 1 Corinthians 5. He rebuked them for not caring about sin. I wonder if they went, "All oh, right," And they went the whole other way. Came down on like a ton of bricks of righteous fire. And then suddenly Paul's got to write to them in another letter and go, okay, like just... Have a look at what he says there. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 6, he says, This punishment by the majority is enough for such a person. So now instead you should forgive and console him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That is, I presume this guy repented, right? Right? And they're still just going for it. It Says so I urge you reaffirm your love for him, and we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What Paul's saying there is that if we're not careful in the way we exercise this loving Christian discipline, we can actually play into Satan's hands by being excessively harsh on repentant brothers and sisters. If they repent, we need to forgive. We need to console, according to Paul. We need to reaffirm our love for the repentant sinner and mirror the love that God has for this person. Now, there needs to be real care exercised and wisdom about how we do that as a church, because I do not think that that means acting as though nothing has ever happened. There may well be consequences of the sin that we need to deal with, acknowledge and take account of. But we still forgive the person who's repentant. We express the love that God has for the repentant sinner in our fellowship with that person. So how then do we go about getting it right in terms of this corporate addressing of holiness when you see sin in others? How do you do that? Well, uh, four things. You can fill it in on the page there. First of all, respond with a heart of genuine love. That's the first rule. Respond with a heart of genuine love. Notice Paul's response. When he had to write to the Corinthians about the sin in their community, this is 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, he says, For I wrote to you out of much distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. This guy's not on a power trip. It's not a righteous sort of, oh, holier-than-thou attitude. This guy is in serious loving turmoil because his brothers sisters are, are caught in a sin and he's desperate to see them out of it so respond from a heart of genuine love secondly it has to be aimed at repentance and restoration aimed at repentance and restoration the point is never punishment or condemning sort of judgment the point is always Of the discipline of the of the admonishment is to see them repent and be restored because you love them even the most severe limits of this sort of anguish tough love are aimed at restoration of the sinning brother or sister so again paul 1 corinthians 5 verse 5 you are to hand this man this this particular man engaged in this particular sin of which he was unrepentant hand this man over to satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is, I think what he's saying here is treat this unrepentant person as an unbeliever so that he might realise how far he's wandered from the way of Jesus so that he might then repent, come back and at that final day be part of that saved people of God because he's repented and come back to the community. Third, it's always in a tone of gentleness, always in a tone of gentleness, as befits treating a brother or sister in Christ. We never deal with sin in a brother or sister with a harsh or a heavy hand. It must always be with the gentleness with which God has dealt with us. So Galatians 6.1, My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Finally, the fourth point, there must be always a respectful process. There must always be a respectful process. There's a respectful way of going about this type of admonishment. It's a process that maximizes the opportunity for your brother or sister to respond in repentance without it becoming public before it needs to. And the Scriptures outline the sort of processes that do this, either with a member of the church in Matthew 18 or with an elder in 1 Timothy 5. So it needs to be a respectful process that will maximise the opportunity they have for repentance before it necessarily needs to become public. So that's some words from Scripture in dealing with sin in ourselves and in others. Now all of that talk about sin may sound fairly negative, But if we're going to take holiness seriously and be serious about, you know, faithful perseverance in the ways of God, we need to know what to do about sin in ourselves and in others in the body of Christ. Yet the overall picture in the Scriptures, when it comes to faithfully persevering in Jesus, it's not negative. The overall picture is actually very clear. We can have theological confidence in the face of an imperfect church. Three things to note there, you can fill them in. We can have confidence in God's work for us in Christ. God's work for us in Christ. That is, there is ample forgiveness whenever we repent. There's always forgiveness, no matter how many times you fail, no matter how many times I fail. If we come back to Christ in repentance, there is always forgiveness. And it's never sort of hopeful in the sense of, oh, well, I hope God will forgive me one more time. We know because of the all-sufficient death of Jesus, there is always grace when we repent. Whatever that sin is with which you struggle, there is always grace when we repent. But second, we have confidence in God's work in us by His Spirit. We have confidence in God's work in us by His Spirit. Friend, walking in holiness is not beyond you, no matter what the evil one whispers in your ear. Walking in holiness is not beyond you. It's not too hard for us. Because the power that enables us to repent when we sin and to continue in faithful perseverance, the strength is not our own, because then I'd have no basis for any confidence whatsoever. The power that is in work within us is that of His Holy Spirit, dwelling within us as members of His new covenant church, empowering our repentance and our obedience. And finally, we can have confidence in God's promise, His promise to us, that He'll finish what He's begun, in God's promise to us that He'll finish what He's begun. So, Philippians 1 6, I'm confident of this, writes Paul, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. God has done, is doing, will do everything that's necessary to bring us to perfect holiness on that final day. So we move forward in faithful perseverance with confidence in his power and plan. Now, pretty much I've run out of time. But. Praise God that um, the little timer I have on my screen down here, which uh, tells me how many milliseconds I've been speaking for, um, is not working tonight. (laughs) In all seriousness. I'm looking at it there and it says (laughs) 0.0.0. True story. Anyway, anyway. True story. So I'm going to take that as a divine sign. (laughs) And I'm going to race through this last section. So get your pen. Here we go. The final thing, the final thing that characterizes us as a church of response, is that we are a people of unlikely joy. Unlikely joy. That's the way Peter describes us as Christians in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9, as a people who, in verse 8, rejoice with an indescribable and a glorious joy. What's more, he says in verse 6, we rejoice, even though we might be suffering in various trials. What's the source of such joy? Why are Christians joyful even in the face of trials, difficulties? Well, verse 3, because by his mercy we have new birth into a living hope. Verse 4, into an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, which, verse 5, will be revealed on the final day. So we rejoice because our future is secure. Whatever our present trials, whatever the suffering. Our future is rock solid, and so we can rejoice. I think what that really means when it comes down to it is there's only really one reason for joy. Ultimately, there's only one, one reason for joy. It's because Jesus is in control. Our reason for joy is that Jesus is Lord. Through his resurrection, we've received this new birth. It's when Jesus is finally revealed that we'll receive the inheritance kept in heaven for us. It's because he's Lord that we're receiving the salvation of our souls. So our joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Our joy is so much more secure than that because our joy comes from the knowledge that Jesus is Lord today, tomorrow and forever. And he will not forsake his body the church so we are a people of unlikely joy I'm going to leave you to read about Joy's wingmen, who are patience and thanksgiving <laughs> from Colossians chapter 1 and I'll just point out that our joy isn't only in what Jesus has done for us and will do for us personally. That, again, is to be fatally infected with individualism. You can see there from point C on the page, our joy is also joy in the Lord's work among us. If you read what Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians 3, you'll see he takes great joy in the way he sees God at work in his brothers and sisters. So in the midst of all our difficulties and struggles, where a people of this unlikely joy... That's part of our response to God's, God's forming of us as his church. And it's just worth reflecting on whether the gatherings of God's people of which you are a part, when you gather as a small group for EU Bible study, when we come together as, an, as, as EU at a public meeting, when you gather at church, is it a gathering of joy? I don't mean a superficial, happy, clappy joy that, that, that lives with its head in the sand, actually, that denies the reality of suffering and makes out that you ought to be deliriously happy all the time because Jesus is in your heart. That really just is a bit like La La Land. It's not reality, right? Joy isn't making out everything's fine, really. No, actually, joy is saying everything is not fine, but Jesus is Lord. And so it'll be okay. That's joy. I can rejoice in that. If we're living in the real world, then when we get together as God's people, there will be tears of mourning over our sin, over the lost. There will be tears over the pain. And if we're really paying attention to God's word and caring about corporate holiness, there will be times of godly grief when we gather and repentance and contrition. But there will also be this mark of unmistakable joy An abiding and unlikely joy that runs deep even in the midst of the tears and the grief. It's the joy that comes from knowing God's work for us and in us and amongst us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's what the church is doing in the world. Being this people of response. We're in the world. We're for the world. We're not of the world. And we respond with singular worship to the God who saved us. In faithful perseverance in his ways. Throwing off that sin that so clings so closely. And we are a people of deep and abiding, unlikely, thankful joy. That's what we're doing in the world. So be the church.